This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. In her latest book, Losing Eden, acclaimed journalist Lucy Jones interweaves her deeply personal story of recovery from addiction and depression, aided by the support of the natural world, with an exploration of the intersection of science, wellness, and the environment. In this episode, scholar and CIIS staff member Laura Pustarfi joins Lucy for a conversation about the importance of maintaining our bond with nature and why we need communion with the wild to feel well. This episode was recorded during a live online event on August 14th, 2021. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and thank you especially to you, Lucy. We're here to speak about your book, Losing Eden, Our Fundamental Need for the Natural World and Its Ability to Heal Body and Soul. The UK subtitle is Why Our Minds Need the Wild, which I quite like, actually. And the book is such a well-researched and evocative look at how our health, especially mental health, is intertwined with the natural world. And I'm so looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you so much, Laura. Me too. So in the book, you so beautifully weave science and your personal story together. Could you tell us a little bit about your earliest experiences of nature? Were, Were you around nature much as a child yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in <clears throat> in England in an area um, in kind of the suburbs of London um, in a boarding school, actually. So my my kind of uh, closest nearby environment was playing fields. Um, um, so so in no way kind of the wilderness, but I did. There was a little brook, um, and there was a uh the river thames running through as well um and we had a a little garden with a couple of apple trees um and i was encouraged to to learn about the rest of nature um by my parents my father was very interested in birds um and would take us for, for for long walks and my mother is a painter of the natural world so i was kind of fortunate that I had these two influences um, as, a, as a child kind of introducing me to the idea of kind of kinship with others, um, other beings. And I used to love collecting insects in um, my garden and um, uh, climbing trees. I spent quite a lot of time in Scotland, which was a lot more um, remote and rural and kind of the sea was wilder and um and uh, there were kind of lots of birds of prey and, and woods and so on. And, and those spaces in Scotland became really important to me, I think, to my kind of imagination growing up. And um, I was really fortunate that I had those, those opportunities to spend time kind of with trees and in woodlands and so on. Saying that, I think my, um, I guess my kind of, philosophical um 
kind of experience of of the outdoors or spending time in nature was quite um influenced by the judeo-christian tradition i grew up in a very conservative evangelical family and while i was encouraged to learn about and know about um wildlife so i'd have kind of wildlife fact books um there was a sense i think that um you know humans were kind of exceptional or that it was quite a kind of anthropocentric view of the natural world, maybe, you know, an, an idea that um, that's a kind of an idea of dominion was definitely present in my kind of early influences and so on. Um, so so kind of going through life, it has been, um, it has evolved, you know, my, my sense of nature, but I was, yeah, I was really lucky to have some time. And, and of course we know that um, one of the most important factors in a person in adult life having a relationship or connection with the natural world is whether they've had opportunities as a child um so i i am so glad that i was taken out for walks even you know what i would complain as an older child and um grouse about it you know i think that at those times the um my senses were kind of awakened and um you know, being able to smell pine trees and, and listen out for bird calls um, were, was really important. Though, of course, I had then a very long dormancy period, which often people do in their teenage years and young adulthood, um, the end of which began the Losing Eden journey. Yeah, thank you. It sounds like such a rich, rich childhood experience and memories. And and. I do want to just ask about that time that you you talk about in the book. You've you've been very open and vulnerable about your own challenges and mental health struggles in that time of of disconnection um, from nature, and um, that can be a very private thing and even taboo in some places. So I'm curious how it's been for you to share your experiences so openly, and and what's been the response? Sure, um, I think I I am quite. Um, I find the kind of taboo and, um, well, we definitely have it a lot over here in in the UK, this kind of stiff upper lip and, um, you know, idea that you don't talk about your emotions and your emotional health or your mental health are kind of um, a taboo or or even shameful or embarrassing if you have um, mental health struggles. Um, And I, I just don't like that. I think it's it's really harmful. Um, and so I feel quite, I feel quite comfortable talking about, um, I mean, obviously after the fact, not during, but I've had experience of depression and anxiety and, and addiction issues. And, um, I suppose because I'm very interested in the mind and, and psychology and the brain and, um, psychoanalysis, I am, I um, I'm, I'm really happy to talk about those experiences because I think that it's just really imp- important to to do that if you can and um, and I guess I couldn't really write about um, losing Eden without bringing that personal story in um, because it was so um, it was really the the catalyst and the kind of genesis of the the journey of the book was this experience of 
um, going into recovery and um, being feeling very fragile and shaky and and trying to get sober um, and recover from periods of depression and anxiety and and being so bowled over by how profoundly therapeutic connecting again with the natural world was um, that I just wanted really wanted to find out what was going on um, and so I, I kind of needed to, to to write about that in the beginning of the book um, to explain I think kind of my impetus um, I I have been I haven't had any negative I don't think responses to writing openly about mental health um, I think it was probably quite difficult for certain older members of my family for me to to write about addiction and sobriety because of course there's still a lot of stigma around addiction um but in my my personal experience is that I have been and am helped every day by other people sharing their stories of recovery um so so it didn't feel difficult to do that myself um and I, I think, you know, sharing is, is really important. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you. And, and thank you for so courageously sharing that story in the book and, and here. Um, and so you mentioned that nature was, was critical for you as you regained your health, that, that this was part of your process. And, and in the book, you talk about your walks on the marshes as, as rehab in a way. Um, how did you come to those daily walks? And can you tell us what it was like for you? Sure. Um, so this was almost 10 years ago or so. And I, I guess I say that because I feel like, and this is great, that in the last few years, um, certainly over here in the UK, the uh, nature and mental health um, as a kind of, as a subject has become a lot more like kind of normal to talk about. And you know, people are making that connection and um, it's, you know, it's quite present in, in the discourse, but 10 years ago or so for me anyway, in my, in my kind of peer group um, and understanding, um, it wasn't obvious to me that uh, at this time of kind of a health crisis, that spending time in the natural world might be helpful or, or therapeutic, um, which and, and and that was interesting to me after the fact, you know, that it never even really, um, it, it really occurred to me that, that connecting again with the living world might be important. So what happened was I was newly sober, all the psychological issues that I'd been drinking away for a long time were coming up. Um, I was feeling very kind of angry and, and raw. Um, and kind of um, casting around for things to do to, to keep my mind busy and brain busy kind of between psychotherapy appointments, psychiatric appointments and, and support groups. And I knew that running was good for your mind. You know, I knew that the endorphins could help because, you know, I'd, I'd often used running in the past to, to stabilise myself. And so I started to go running in Walthamstow Marshes and, it is a really incredible place. It's this open, it's a, this open space in a very built-up area. Um, you kind of come off a busy road with loads of buses and trains and 
traffic and big roundabouts, very quite industrial. And suddenly you're in this um, vast kind of calm marshland, which is actually a, a site of scientific interest. It has um, different plants and wildflowers. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons why it's quite richly biodiverse is because it was bombed in the war. Um, and the way that affected the soil um, means that it, it was kind of very low nutrient. So it, it had a lot of wildflowers and it was filled with kind of kestrels and herons. And, and I started running there, but I found that what would happen was I would slow down and, and start walking instead because I just wanted to, to look at the trees and, and look at the canal and spend time with the coots. And, you know, it feels, it sounds so naive kind of saying this now that, um, it was so surprising to me, you know, that that doing that would then have this profound effect where I would go back to my flat and just feel restored. And my brain seemed to be cleared of these really, cr really cruel, critical thoughts, the rumination and brooding that I'd kind of been drinking or using on. Um, and of course, I knew as, as, as we all kind of intuit that um or you know there's this cultural idea that spending time in a park or by the river or by a sea is maybe in some way good for us but I had no idea at that point that it could be so profoundly um helpful and healing and um of nourishing and um and deeply stabilizing and so it became one of the one of the things alongside the more conventional therapies that I uh I don't like the word used but I suppose I, I yeah I grew to rely on um over my over my early recovery and and it has been present and growing ever since in later periods as well of um postnatal depression so that was the the kind of personal experience that got me thinking quite quickly what is going on here you know I know how well we don't, we don't really know but we know a little bit about how an antidepressant works or how psychotherapy works or how my support groups are working but what is happening when I'm with these trees what happens to our brains what happens to our nervous systems our microbiome what's happening to our memories what what's happening to our hormones you know, I was thinking I really wanted to to kind of drill down into the nuts and bolts of of that experience and and find out if there was a mechanism or or if there were multiple mechanisms um so that yeah that was the beginning of course the question then did flip quite soon afterwards um to thinking how this kind of well for me, it's a long estrangement, long disconnection from nature had affected my mental health. But, you know, really the book is about everyone and more broadly, um, well, you know, uh, those of us in the kind of industrialised global north, how how our estrangement and disconnection from the rest of the living world is affecting our minds. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like you really built a relationship there with the marshes while you were out on those runs and walks. And, and there was another very compelling piece in the book where you, you mentioned a particular pear tree that was outside of a window where you lived and that you would watch it every day. And it was covered 
by scaffolding at one point, and it kind of made you realize how important that tree was to your day-to-day life. And I'm curious to hear more about that tree and, and what happened for you. Sure. Yeah. So I was living in um, a flat in northeast London. The marshes were about a kind of 20-minute walk-run. I was maybe 10, 15 minutes from a park. Um, so it was quite a kind of urban environment. Um, we didn't have a garden or a yard or anything like that. Um, there were a few street trees, but outside our bedroom window, there was a pear tree. And um, I don't reckon I would have even noticed it kind of before I had this kind of this recovery journey. And um, I just started to become feel really attached to it. I would watch it through the seasons. It would kind of erupt with this amazing blossom in spring. And then through the summer, I'd watch as these pears kind of were blown blown up by the tree. And um, it was just so beautiful. And different birds would come in, blue, te- blue tips and even a woodpecker. And then I'd watch as the, the pears would drop and then it would kind of go all, all brittle and quiet. And then and then, I mean, the best, the best bit was, you know, April and seeing those beautiful green buds just start like tap, 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 creaking. And I just, at that point in, in my life, feeling like I, I can recover, I can get better, I can become, I can be sober and, you know, things change. It became a kind of symbol of, of change in terms of, um, you know the flux of life and the fact everything in in our in our world is always in flux but also constancy um that you know this tree was always there every day and I could always see it and I would always kind of know what might be happening in it um and so the neighbors were doing some building work and they put up this scaffolding and and they um it, it blocked the tree from my view and it was really thick ugly scaffolding and um the effect on me was was kind of surprising even though I knew that I was loving this tree I it made I became really irritable in the flat and um I'd send like passive aggressive texts to my neighbors asking when it was going to come down and be snappy and I felt really kind of caged even to the point where some evenings I would feel kind of my throat constricting with tears um and at that time still really estranged from nature really apart from my mar- the marsh my marshes <laughs> um I was thinking what is going on could this tree really have such an effect on my emotional world how is this working what what's happening here and you know if one tree can have this effect on my life and obviously at, at that time I was pretty fragile and I mean, I'm, I'm highly sensitive anyway, but I was very sensitive at that point. Um, you know, what is the fact that we are stripping the world of trees and we are expecting people to live on streets without trees? Um, what What is that doing kind of to us collectively? Um, and yeah, I wanted to, wanted to discover, discover what was going on there. Uh. I'm I'm curious what happened with the tree. Did the scaffolding come off or how was that? It did. Yeah, it came down and I saw saw the tree again and we were reunited. Um, and 
I actually, I, I, I don't live there anymore. We, we left about five years ago and I actually had a, a text from the guy who lives there because I got some books accidentally delivered there and I couldn't help myself but say, please send my regards to the pear tree. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping it's still there. But I guess I probably had relationships with trees as a child, but that was probably my first relationship with a tree as an adult that was really meaningful um <clears throat> and that that has continued I have a, a new favorite tree which is a beech tree and I've and it's almost as if um yeah that kind of kicked things off for me I now I feel like I have a, a evolving relationship with a with a beech tree which is really important to me yeah they can be almost as important as as relationships with human people as well uh, I really appreciated how you talk about your children and the experiences you've had introducing them to the natural world too, maybe introducing them to, to your favorite trees. Um, and you talk about the research and you mentioned it earlier about how important it is as a child to have um, contact with nature. And, and I'm curious if you'd be willing to tell us a little bit more about how it's been watching little ones interact with nature. Sure. Yeah. So one of the, um, it's been really incredible, actually, and a massive gift to see the world kind of through their eyes. Um, so I have an almost five-year-old, a two-year-old and a, and a five-month-old. And um, I think that what, um, what I first noticed is that whenever I couldn't settle them, you know, they were just crying and crying and crying. If I, I went outside and showed them some trees moving in the wind or the or walked to our local cemetery, which is my local green space, and and walked around trees, it just it seemed to usually soothe them. Something about the the movement, I think, you know, nature's mobile, um, and definitely soothed me as well because you know it's so sym symbiotic. Um, and it, one of the research studies that I mentioned in the book is 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 one about um, newborn babies being shown different videos, and um, and one is of uh, a moving chicken, which the the researchers call biological motion display, um, and the the study concludes that even very early on, newborn babies prefer to watch movement which doesn't sound particularly surprising, really. Um, uh, you know, you'd imagine that a baby is, has evolved to look for where the mother is as, as the source of food. But I've definitely seen that in my young children. There's something about the, the motion in the natural world which seems to, um, to keep, keep their attention much quick, much um, for, for longer than in a home with a, with a toys or toys or something static. Um, also one of the most kind of strange and interesting things I started to notice with my, my daughter was that she would like to eat soil in the garden. So, um, you know, and I'd, I thought it was kind of interesting to me that she would always put the soil in her mouth, um, obviously try and get it out. But, um, and at the same time, I, we moved to a house with a garden. I started gardening for the first time in adult life and realized that afterwards I would feel really good, really kind of a real buzz after gardening. And um, 
I was interested in in what was happening there as well. And I ended up talking to um, a few of the leading microbiologists who study microbacteria in the soil. And I was talking to them about um, this particular microbacteria called Mvaki, which is um, tiny critter found in, found in the soil, um, which has been found in studies to have antidepressant-like effects on the brain. Um, and it was kind of mind-blowing to me. They also told me that um, babies all over the world tend to eat soil. They're kind of drawn to soil. Um, and I thought it was so interesting that you know she, she was eating soil and, and at the same time I was perhaps being exposed to these old friends, these bacteria that we've evolved with over millennia that might have been at the time um, kind of boosting my, my serotonin. And how many other bacteria might there be in the soil that we just don't know about or how it how it affects us? Um, and I think that, I mean, we, we spend as much time outside as we, we possibly can, but oh, there's just so many things I've noticed from sometimes if, if it's a day of meltdowns and tempers running high and, you know, if we go into the woods, everyone just seems to relax. Um, it's not always like that. It's not always perfect. Sometimes it's only 10 minutes, but it does seem to have a calming effect on, on my children. Um, and also um, the, the senses again, you know, I think one of the things that I I've gathered from them is, is, is a, a more tactile relationship with the natural world. Um, I think I, I was much more visual before having children maybe in an oral, but, you know, a, a baby will, even a four month old baby will, will grab a branch and, and shake it and want to look at a leaf or um, will want to touch bark, you know, and, and really feel, feel it. My, my daughter likes to put her hand out and see if a bumblebee will, will walk on her hand and um, they're, they're tactile children. And, and that's really, I've really kind of benefited from that. Um, and I suppose, um, you know, kids are so estranged from the rest of nature today. They they spend, I think it's 12,000 hours in a classroom throughout their education. Um, and we, you can just see how, well, I have noticed in, in my children that they just naturally love all the other beings. It's, they love the spiders and the wood lice and and we're lucky in the well I don't know if lucky is the word but we don't have really dangerous spiders or, or anything so they can kind of play around outside and and make friends and you know they refer to the bumblebees as he's or she's or or they's and you know that there is a just automatic natural kinship that I, I see in them um and then of course the influences come in and, and they kind of influence that out of, of children, the way we keep them up in, in classrooms. And one of the most mind-blowing statistics I, 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 I write about in Losing Eden is that children today spend less leisure time outdoors than inmates and incarcerated um, people, uh, you know, who have to, by UN law, have a certain amount of time outside. Um, we've just made it so difficult for children to play outside, um, you know, traffic and, and roads and so on. Um, but yeah, it's been a real, it's been a, an amazing gift seeing, 
seeing the world through their eyes. And of course, because they are so close to the ground, they spot things that I don't spot. I'll always find beetles and and things like that. Yeah, it must be just so wonderful kind of seeing through their eyes. Um, that, that, that statistic about, about children spending less time outside than inmates, there's just so much there and, and so many so many things for children, for, for incarcerated people. And um, just uh, that was a very shocking statistic for me as well. And yeah. Um, and, and just to go back to the, the book itself, um, I actually found for myself that while I was reading your book, the more that I read it, the more I wanted to be outdoors while I was reading. So I found myself going outside and actually reading the book um, quite, quite often um, as I was finishing up. I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have... Um, practices like reading outdoors or um, other things that that keep you connected to the natural world? Is there anything you do regularly now to keep yourself connected? Oh, that's a a lovely question. I'm so glad that it had that effect on you. And um, that's something that I've heard people say, and I never kind of expected it really, really when, I mean, the book is essentially a kind of a synthesis of the most compelling and interesting scientific evidence I could find, but also kind of more esoteric and and more um I don't know um I guess kind of philosophical thought I could find uh about why our minds need the world so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that um I I'm a really big um I really love the the little things um the miniature and the the kind of small details so I, I like to go out with my hand lens and I'm always drawn to moss and lichen um, and I, I have a particular moss wall in, in, in the local cemetery, which is my local um, natural environment. And I really love, I really love looking at, looking at moss and lichen and, and seeing what I can find. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very keen on, on insects as well and invertebrates. I'm always kind of looking, looking to see um, it's, I'm often with the young children, so you know I, I can't always um, linger too long. It's kind of dependent. Um, sometimes I like to um, just go and kind of sit, sit under my favorite tree, uh, and just be there. Um, I'm. I'm also. I really love swimming outside. So um, when we moved out of London to this this area. Um, in the countryside in, in England. I mean, I'm in a very urban town, actually. I live in a really urban area, but about 10 minutes away, we have some nice rivers and um, we call it wild swimming. Um, but swimming swimming in very cold rivers is something that I, I try and do as, as much as I can. Um, and I, I write about that a bit in the book because it's, I, I try to, work out what was happening in those rivers and uh I was recovering from um period of postnatal depression and postpartum depression and it it was those rivers um which was almost like the marshland experience where I would be feeling so overwhelmed and so anxious and uh just you know really unstable but I'd go and go to the river and swim in the cold water and just feel just feel a bit of relief um and it and it was quite a, s- a spiritual place for me um i guess in some ways i felt quite trans quite, quite kind of transcendent um 
but also I I, I was looking because there's not that much scientific evidence about kind of cold water swimming, even though, you know, anyone who does it will say anecdotally, I feel much better afterwards, etc. But there is um, there is evidence that negative ions, which are ions which um, are created when water kind of uh, waters hit together. So waves, waterfalls, anywhere where there's kind of motion in water, um, those negative ions may have antidepressant-like effects too. And I noticed that in this, this cold water area, I was always drawn to sit by the waterfall and just kind of be around. So perhaps there were there was something going on. And I think that's one of the things that I learned through my journey, which was that previously, um, before having this kind of reconnection and research interest, I thought or was taught that my my body and my mind were kind of impervious to the environment our environment and the rest of nature that I was kind of like my skin was kind of adamantine or um you know so separate from the rest of nature uh, almost like it was a force field whereas through reading the literature and finding out about phytoncides you know the chemicals emitted by trees the microbacteria these negative ions I realized how kind of porous we are, um, you know, and how how the interactions between us and our our environments, whether they're urban or natural, um, are myriad. And 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 I think more deeper and more important than our society kind of realizes. Um, and I just I love being outside as much as possible, reading outside, writing outside. Um, um but yeah those are the looking for mushrooms i love looking for fungi um which is coming up quite soon um just seeing what i can find beautiful and um i mean there's so many so many different practices thank you for for sharing those and i'm wondering if we can shift just a little bit you've talked a, a bit about some of the studies and science and 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 your book really shows this this large and growing body of, of scientific evidence showing um, the benefits of these things and um, especially how much humans benefit from from having trees and green growing things around kind of everywhere in the workplace um, your hospitals at home um, you even mentioned in the book that it could be an issue of public health which I thought was really um, interesting and I don't think very many people think about the natural world this way so can you tell us a little bit more about about how nature impacts health and well-being and some of the the studies behind it yeah, sure. So um, I kind of, I thought that perhaps there might be one mechanism to explain, which was you know, kind of absurd looking back on it. But in fact, um, what I found was that connection with the, the rest of the living world can really affect us from our heads to our toes. Um, so we all probably know that there could be something restorative about natural environments. Um, but did you know that when you, um, when you're in a natural environment compared to a built environment, you recover from stress more completely and, and more quickly. And that may be because when we're in nature, our 
nervous systems are more likely to be balanced. So our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the the one associated with kind of rest and digest and feelings of calm and contentment, as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight um, and so on. Um, And that also means that spending time in nature can even enhance our immune function and our immune systems and reduce inflammation, which we're starting to now learn that um, there's a link between inflammation and, and mental health, psychological health. There are so many areas and interactions. I'll tell you a few of my favorites. Um, one is to do with petrichor, which is that wonderful word for the smell of the earth after it's rained. So if there's been a dry smell spell and then it and then it rains, um, the compound geosmin is is released um, from the earth. Um, which is what petric the, the word petrichor is for. And in, in studies, um, um, studies suggest that when we smell geosmin, the compound, it activates areas of the brain associated with calmness and relaxation. And we can detect geosmin um, at kind of really low levels, um, presumably because, you know, as we evolved for 99% and have lived 99% of our evolutionary history in the natural world, we evolved to need to smell irrigated landscapes. Um, so I love that when it's it's been dry and then, you, and then you smell the rain, just kind of thinking about how that might be affecting our brains. Um, another favourite of mine is the, the impact of fractal shapes. So fractal shapes um, are found all over the place in the natural world trees, leaves, flowers, um, salt flats, lightning, fractal broccoli, um, uh, even, you know, kind of weeds coming up from the cracks of the pavements will will be fractal in shape, um, uh, which means that it's the same shape uh, repeating in in various degrees of size. Um, And a great guy called Richard Taylor um, found that the particular dimension found in nature of, of fractal shapes, which is, I think is between 1.3 and 1.5, had specific um, uh, effects on, on brain activity associated with calmness and, and well-being, with the conclusion being that we would feel a lot less stressed if, if we spent more time looking at fractal shapes and being in, in the natural world. Um, birdsong can reduce blood pressure, uh, we know that phytoncides, the, the chemicals emitted by trees, can also have measurable effects on our health. There's so many, um, there's so many areas now uh, measured and studied by scientists in so many different disciplines across continents to show that we really need the natural world for our sanity. Um, we really need restorative natural environments and. Um, I, I say that it's an issue of public health because um, while um, you know, the study of environmental health and environmental injustice has often or kind of to date focused on um, matters like uh, you know, air pollution, water pollution, um, hazardous waste, etc. Um, there's also now, I mean, at, it's kind of funny, isn't it, that we need the science to prove to us what what you know so many people know, and obviously, you know, indigenous and, and traditional communities just know this, um, that we need we need the natural world. Um, 
but but now the science of nature and health is is proving unequivocally that we need more nature for for he- happy healthy lives now you know it looks as though if um there are communities living in areas with a poor city of of the rest of nature or on streets without any street trees um or you know in, in tower black blocks with no access or projects with no access to restorative living environments um the lack of that uh, and the kind of injustice and uh, inequitability of that is deeply unfair um and um you know the science shows now that that these are it's it's almost like being able to sleep well or or having good food you know it's not something that's a luxury or a frill or something just for the wealthy or you know something that is a kind of add-on or an optional extra for a good life it's actually something that i i believe through through the research is, is telling us that that we fundamentally need um you know in order to to be okay with living on the surf. Mm-hmm. Now, there's issues of accessibility and and where trees are located in the cities are they're uh, such important pieces so that everyone has access to to the natural world and and to these these amazing benefits for physical and and mental health. I really agree with you on that. Yeah, and I think that like um equitable tree cover is so important for so many reasons and one of them obviously being that in our global heating world world, um shade and and tree cover for shade but also there's some really interesting um uh work coming out about how um background nature and unintentional nature um trees are, are are really significantly important so while I was writing the book and looking at all the research, I was really conscious that so many people I know don't love nature in the way I do or don't want to climb trees on the weekend or want to look for insects. And you know, there's this idea that it's just kind of for people who you know, love the natural world in that, that way, conscious way. But in fact, what, what studies are showing us is that um, living on a living on a street with trees and having kind of unintentional contact with the natural world is super important and 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 has these measurable effects on on population health as well mm-hmm. yeah, such an important point i want to talk a little bit about that word that you use um so often um nature it can be loaded a bit confusing what, what's really included what's not um are trees are buildings included or um you know human-made things included so what what does nature mean to you how do you define that term that's a really good question i have a real conflicted relationship with that word um i'm kind of trying not to use it so much at the moment because i um i think it has a lot to answer for um you know in that it, it it cements that idea that we have that it's nature's out there and and we're separate from it and, and we're not nature. Um, uh, but saying that, you know, it is it is a kind of heuristic in a way or it, it, it's a way that people understand um, thinking about the natural. I think it's impossible to define the word nature, isn't it? And I'm really interested in how people use it and 
and how you know how our vocabulary and our our language affects the way we feel about the natural world um and how our kind of paucity of our lexicon for for the living world maybe really affects how we kind of respond to it psychologically um for example the marshland that i i loved i fell in love with was called officially an sssi a site of something scientific interest which you know something like, something like that should be called like the land of wonder or like a place of awe um we have we strap these kind of kind of scientific names on places and i think that they divest divest them of the the wonder and awe and and solace and joy that people can find there even the word kind of environment the environment you know as if it's not our environment as if it's not our home um or you know national parks and and in the states you don't have national parks across all states it's not it's not equitable at all um but the word i'm trying to as when i can instead of the word nature just use the word life at the moment that's what i'm 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 kind of trying out because i think certainly um i've seen this in england there's this idea that saving nature or conserving nature or protecting nature is is kind of so um so detached from from the human world and you know it's just like those insects or you know, the birds and the butterflies and so on um and we just we seem to have this kind of lacuna of um of acknowledging the interconnectedness of of all beings and um you know that if the, the insect apocalypse continues it's not just their lives that are going to um be in trouble it's all of our lives um so yeah i i try and use the rest of nature or the rest of the living world um where i can to kind of make that point but um i don't know i can i can i put the question back to you i'm really interested in whether you use that word or what you think about it yeah thank you i i try to avoid that word also um i think it has a, a long history of kind of being romanticized and um used in various ways different people mean different things so um i i've used the non-human world um, which also has its own problems since it's uh thinking about the natural world in relationship to humans, that it's not human. Um, but others have used the more than human world and um, other terms. And, and I really think we need some new terms also. And I, I love life. Um, I think that's, that's, that's one of the best, best terms. So I, I love that, that that's one that you've come to. So, and I want to go a little, a little bit more. You mentioned the awe and wonder. Um, why do you think awe and wonder is so important to, to reconnecting with the natural world, with life. Yeah, I, uh, this is one of my favorite areas of research um, was the science of awe, which is led by Dasha Keltner um, in California, actually, you might, you might know him. Um, so he's done some really interesting work into how awe affects our, our, our minds and, and our bodies and so on. And I guess, um, like everyone, I would have, beforehand thought 
awe is a nice experience or it feels good to listen to an amazing piece of music or um, look at an incredible painting or um, see a mountain or so on. Um, but reading, reading deeper into it, I had no idea um, how that feeling awe could change our biochemistry. It can actually, um, it's the one emotion, positive emotion, which seems to have a direct effect on a particular biomarker for inflammation, cytokines. So it can have a real effect on our bodies um, and, and, our, and on, our, on our minds and our brains and our feelings of well-being. Um, it can even make us um, kinder and more generous. So um, the researchers found that when people feel all, they're more likely to be um, kind of pro-social um, and, and more giving. And I, I think that's really important because, um, well, personally for me, I, I, I love finding awe and wonder in the natural world. And for me, it's often in the small things, like I mentioned, um, or like kind of mushrooms or, you know, thinking about the mycelial networks or looking in my hand lens, um, into moss um it's a it's a kind of quietening of you know the, my sense of self and and um and in and, and in studies um they they show that when we experience all activities in the default mode network which is the area of the brain associated with sense of self um are, are lessened um you know it, it's that connecting into something vaster and, and bigger than ourselves, which um, uh, as someone who's prone to rumination and brooding um, is, is a deep relief. Um, but I think, you know, if, if all can make us kinder and more generous, uh, that that is something that, that we should be seeking. Um, and I, I think that we, you know, there are, there's so much wonder available in 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 life um and kind of going back to the children aspect um you know we when we when we coop kids up or we, we don't give children direct experience with with life we we cut off um and restrict their opportunities for wonder and awe um and those those are important for the reasons I've, I've outlined, the, you know, the research that we know about. But also, I truly believe that it's through experiencing awe and wonder and feeling that kind of, you know, that wow factor um, and, and that sense of kind of love and, and uh, you know, that, that just that emotional experience is what will lead um, to... To making people care about um, working against the forces of, um, you know, destruction and, and extinction, um, and we know that if people uh, have that experience uh, as a child, they're more likely to be more pro-environmental as, as adults. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, it's really. I feel like that's a real keystone area of research in how to how to kind of switch our switch our anthropocentric imaginings outwards yeah yeah it's really this relationship with other other beings that that sense of love yeah yeah, yeah. I mean saying that I'm talking about this from 
you know, my my perspective of um, you know, privilege and having these opportunities. Um, you know, I write more about this in the book, but of course there are many systemic and structural barriers and obstacles for all people experiencing that. Um, so, you know, those are those are barriers that need to be overcome. You know, so everybody can have that experience with with the rest of nature. Um, thank you. Thank you. I, I sit in that privileged position also and, and agree. And I'm curious to ask about about the non-human or natural or living beings themselves. So, so much of the conversation um, is about how humans, we humans relate to nature, at least in, in Western cultures, um, which is my lineage um, as well. And um, what about what about the trees, the animals, the insects themselves? What do you think about their relationship to us? What an amazing question. Ah, oh, I love that question. Um, I've been trying to think more about that and um, I have a practice at the moment where I try and um, imagine that I'm, you know, one of the insects, like a hoverfly in my garden and to write from their perspective to try and kind of decenter me. Um, well, I, th I think there's so much we don't know. I mean, you know, we're finding out a little bit scratching the surface of you know how trees communicate and you know the, the networks and and the mother trees and so on i think it will be so interesting if we can discover what um how how trees and and, and insects how we are kind of affecting them in in more indirect ways um i I would, I would say that I'm quite careful with because kind of going picking up on a few of our threads. You know, having young children who are very tactile, um, who want to touch insects or touch plants and, and flowers. It's often kind of on my mind a little bit about that direct um, impact. You know, previous to to having kids, I might um, and and realizing that tactile relationship with life is 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 possible um i probably would have you know as i said before been looking at things a bit more um but these days i am kind of always thinking about does that bumblebee want to be on your hand does that bumblebee want to be stroked or how can we not walk in a way that doesn't affect the wildflowers or um you know, my, my my kids were today um, hitting a, a tree, a bark, the bark of a tree with sticks, um, and my husband actually said, you know, maybe that tree doesn't want to be hit by a stick. Uh, you know, so I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm I'm early in this journey, and I I love the question. Um, I would love to know. I've been looking this week at um, all, an alder tree. Uh, and the the patterns that the caterpillar makes on the alder tree when it eats it and the kind of lattice work um and it looked to me like a language like it looks kind of like morse code or um like almost like another language and uh of course there's so much we don't know and i just love that so much you know we we think that we know everything as human beings but imagine what they think of us walking around um 
What about you? I really want to know what you think about that. I, yeah, I have lots of thoughts about that. But, um, but I think just asking the question is really important. And, and in, in your response, you talked about really that intentional moment, just thinking, how, how do I walk without um, interrupting the flowers? Or e- even with the, what your husband said, maybe the tree doesn't want to be hit. So, I mean, can we even think about, well, what, maybe what the tree wants? Is it, could it want things? And, and ultimately, I, I kind of think as, as humans, we're so situated in our human embodied um, experience that we can't really know, just like I can't really know what's going on for you. We can't really know, but we can be curious. And I think that's, it's really wonderful. So, yeah. I agree. Yeah. And after that, I, I kind of hate to ask this question, but I, I want to ask as well, because you talk in the book about, about grief. There are these realities of climate change, deforestation, species extinction happening in our world, um, not to even mention the pandemic and, and everything that's coming up with that. So, yeah, how do, how do we handle this reality, especially kind of the mental health aspect and, and what's helped you as you've um, interacted with the natural world? Grief. Yeah, it's like so bittersweet kind of reconnecting with life. Um at this time you know um a year or so in obviously I after kind of reconnecting I fell into a state of ecological grief and you know realizing how much you know um has been destroyed and and is is being destroyed and so on and, and all the um all the forces that have have done that um I I find that the the one thing that um helps me is 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 kind of quite hyper local activism and organizing so um being in touch with other people who I can talk about grief with and you know who can empath- empathize um and also just doing what I can locally to make a bit of a difference. So um had a really a really intense experience this year of me and my neighbor and friend are trying to rewild a field at the back of our house. Um it's less than an acre, but we we wanted to let it grow and just let whatever wanted to come up come up and whoever wanted to move in move in. Um it was a previously it was like an amenity lawn just mown down. Um uh, kind of out the way though and by May it was so full of life um, and it's like a stone's throw from a shop massive shopping mall and like a railway station but just by stepping back um, uh, you know and, and that being a, res- a response to the extinction and destruction and fetish for mowing that we have in this country everywhere of just like seeing everything mown down constantly because of the kind of cosmetic aesthetic um it came up to life it came came it was so full of life it was buzzing and humming and we go out in the evenings and it was full of grasshoppers and crickets and moths and butterflies and so many different species of of grass um it's kind of like this little prairie meadow um, and then we heard the mowers and they came and they, they took it, they mowed a the whole thing, even though we had this agreement for them not to, um, hopefully we'll 
the agreement is more solid for next year but it was so heartbreaking and devastating to see um to be that evening in this place full of life and the next day just just, just destroyed just like the arisings you know the dead grass we were distraught really distressed um but you know if i think if you feel it if we feel it we can be galvanized by it you know and um i the ipcc report obviously last week and how horrendous um the global heating is at the moment and and habitat destruction uh i find for me the the antidote is to yeah is to do what i can uh kick up a fuss locally try and change things as much as i can um and and you know i guess ironically it's always to go back to the source it's always you know for me it is to go into the to seek life in our in these living environments and 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 find a kinship and thinking about reciprocity and think about how to have a more reciprocal relationship with the rest of nature um saying that i you know i i'm not living in a place which is at the forefront of of global heating and you know we have um kind of cultural issues which is basically mowing like i was in my favorite cemetery the other day and looking at beautiful butterflies and then the mowers come in and they mow it all down but you know that's different um so and i and i appreciate that for a lot of people it's becoming more dangerous to go outside and you know their natural environments are are going and you know i think that um um yeah it's it's, it's complex but yeah for me seeking life still is is the antidote yeah, and trying to stand up against the forces of destruction. And I, I appreciate the different scales um, in in your answer. There's kind of the global piece, and then there's the very local piece, and and also it just it hits me that there's um, you know it, the the lot. It sounds like came back so quickly um, and and came back to life, and then and then kind of a, in in enough I don't know maybe a couple hours it was taken away. So it, it gives me some hope that we have. You know, have the ability to help with this regeneration if we just kind of stop these these destructive pieces. Exactly, yeah. and 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 just as you say, it is about it is amazing how how rapid that regenerate that restoration happened, and and there are so many positive stories about um, you know, is it humpback whales kind of bouncing back, and and how and how simple and easy it is really for us just to to step back actually. Um, you know, it's not the the kind of excessive management of of natural habitats. Is done. We we just need to take a step back and let life thrive. Yeah, well, I also want to ask you a little bit about um, ecotherapy that you write about in the book. That that seems like such a, a wonderful integration of kind of mental health directly with the natural environment, maybe with the help of a professional. I'm I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about ecotherapy. Yeah. So. Um, Ecotherapy um, can mean lots of kind of different things. Um, it can mean, you know, going, uh, conducting psychotherapy in the natural environment, or it can mean uh, a more of an umbrella term, um, uh, including 
things like horticultural therapy or woodland work, woodland therapy, wilderness therapy. Um, uh, oh, I don't like the word using. It's so utilitarian, but I suppose combining the, the natural environment with with kind of therapeutic help in some way. Um, so one of the places I visited um, in my research was a place called Thrive, um, which has been running horticultural therapy programs for, for a number of decades. Um, and, and that will be people um, who have uh, learning difficulties or mental health difficulties, dementia, um, who will uh, come and um, basically garden and, and do gardening and be supported in that. Um, and uh, and the, the results and, and the, are very effective. And it was kind of interesting interviewing horticultural therapists um, because they have been doing this for a long time. You know, it's, it, it's, it's been decades. Um, so when kind of I come in and say, oh, the science is telling us now that, you know, spending time with nature is really good for you. They kind of, you know, they know it, um, even though it hasn't been like, you know, empirically proved for them in that way. And it has now, they know it, of course they do. Um, and I think one of the most affecting um, visits I did was to a medium secure unit in England where, I sat down with a couple of service users, so that means that they um, they kind of have a severe mental illness, and they're also um, in the criminal justice system. And my um, my kind of initial thought was that maybe spending time in, in nature or nature connection was good for you know the worried people with more medium to mild um, mental health conditions but that um those with on the more severe end it wouldn't touch the sides or you know it, it wouldn't do anything that was quickly quickly quashed um when i looked into the evidence and, and particularly visited this medium securing unit where um the service users would do ecotherapy in the garden and um and the 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 woman who ran it was really kind of adamant that growing things was such an intrinsic part of human human life that if people have no access to to the rest of nature then they just get even more ill um and yeah ecotherapy is 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 growing in in, in england there's a kind of growing social prescribing movement of nature-based interventions where doctors will kind of prescribe it obviously it comes with its complexities and and issues as well um and i know that obviously in in, in the states and i think particularly in, in the west coast you have a long history and, and tradition of eco-psychology and um yeah i guess the two terms can be a bit interchangeable as well uh, but i think more people are practicing therapy outside in england for sure mm -hmm. yeah yeah, it's a, it's a good option for people who, who need that support and um, as well. So I just have one more question. I, I'm curious, kind of, you've already got another book out or out soon in the UK, the, the Nature Seed, kind of about how to raise kids with that relationship to nature, what we talked about earlier. Um, I'm wondering what else is coming up for you? What other future projects, maybe railing against your local mowers, but what else is coming up for you in the future? Um, I am, I'm working on a a book about maternal mental health and the kind of ecology of um, early motherhood. Um, it's kind of a mixture of, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm really interested in 
matrescence which is the kind of transition into motherhood and um uh and i'm really interested in space um i'm really interested in kinship um and what that could mean uh and i, I guess i'm trying to draw a line in a way i'm not sure how it's going to look but between i think i'm disconnection and, and connection and how our, our disconnection from the rest of nature is also you know connected to our disconnection from each other in the way we live and 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 how that affects women or people in, in early parenthood um so yeah that's kind of something that's bubbling away in the background um but yeah i have been researching nature and childhood over the last year for a book um yeah called the nature seed about how and why kids need need more nature um so yeah that's what i'm up to yeah wonderful we'll, we'll be anxiously awaiting those that research and the those books of yours thank you thank you so much lucy for this wonderful conversation it's been been so lovely to speak with you today it's so lovely for me thank you so much for your great questions thank you Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.